Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I'm very old. <laughs> I guess. What, what makes you say that? <laughs> no, it, the uh, the encounter that I had in the elevator the other day. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Huh. Tell everyone about that. So I made myself, I made a shirt and it says... I hope Bill Murray is having a great day. And so I was out walking the dogs. I came in and one of the ladies up front who works like in the reception area in our building was uh, like, oh, hi, how's it going? And I was like, great. And she said, I noticed you wearing that shirt the other day. And I had to Google it because I thought that saying has to be from something, right? I hope Bill Murray is having a good day. And, oh, it's a great day, but that's yeah, fine. Right. And she, I said, oh, yeah, no, I just, um, it's just that I hope that Bill Murray is having a great day. And she was like, oh, um, I guess if I knew who Bill Murray was, maybe it would make more sense. Oh my God. Well, well now we're going to have to move. I have to, I cannot continue living here. I can't stay in a building with somebody who has no idea who Bill no, Murray is. No, it's not even that. It's that I'm embarrassed. I'm so... She has every right to not know who Bill Murray is. Well, and true. I'm just walking around wearing a shirt uh, that I made. Like, I put in the effort <laughs> to make it uh-huh. about an actor that is apparently nobody knows about it. He, no, he, he's he's a cultural treasure. He's an icon. I mean, I think so. But th- that lovely young lady is apparently has so much going on in her life and is so rich and full uh, that she just uh, that whole part of pop culture is just unknown to her. Unknown and unnecessary. And I, uh, I can't blame her for that. I think that's. I just, I feel very old. You see, that's where we differ. I blame her entirely for it. (laughs) Yes, we definitely view this in different ways. I would think that uh, if a person does not know who Bill Murray is, that there's like like some deep, empty gap in their heart. (laughs) 
like a yearning they need to fill, but they maybe don't know what it is. <laughs> no, no. You must seek out Bill Murray. Are you proselytizing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The How do you say that word? Proselytizing. I can never say Why that right. Why is the th in there? I don't know. I don't like it. But Bill Murray lies within. Look under a rock and you will find him there. I want you all to speculate with me. Just, I love speculating. Just, it's mutual speculation. That's why the gas prices are so high right now, because I can't stop speculating. <laughs> <laughs> we're, oh. we're all familiar with the story of the extinction of the dinosaurs. It's commonly referred to as the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event. Mm -hmm. um, it was a sudden mass extinction, not just of the dinosaurs, but 75% of all animals and plant life on the planet Earth about 66 million years ago. Mm -hmm. 75%. It's crazy. With the exception of sea turtles and crocodilians, no tetrapod, a four-legged creature weigh, weighing more than 55 pounds or 25 kilos, survived. The geologic record indicates that this mass extinction event which was caused by, you know, as we all know, a comet or an asteroid. As we all think. Yeah, well, science assumes that this is the, uh, the truth. Six to nine miles wide. A comet or asteroid six to nine miles wide, which is about 10 to 15 kilometers. It devastated the global environment. At the time, dinosaurs were, of course, at the top of the food chain. They were the dominant species. If this event had not taken place... Would dinosaurs have continued to evolve to become the type of self-aware, intelligent, civilization-building species as we did? Carl Sagan, in his book Dragons of Eden, which is, you know, one of my go-to books, I talk about it all the time, Sure, uh, talks about our most ancient mammalian ancestor uh, that was a contemporary of the dinosaurs. It was something akin to a small tree shrew uh, in the period of 66 million years through natural selection and evolution, this tiny little tree shrew became us. The dinosaurs were much further along in those days than tree shrews were. Right. What would they be today if this extinction event had not taken place? That's a fascinating question. Side note, I've mentioned this before, but this is one of the coolest things I, I gleaned from uh, Sagan's book, The Dragons of Eden, Speculations on the Evolution of Human Intelligence. He talks about this tree shrew and how even to this day, after 66 million years of evolution, we still carry some of its earliest traits and perhaps we don't even realize it. It's very likely that the tree shrew spent most of its life trying to avoid giant lizards of, of the day. Uh, they were the prey. They learned that the hissing sound of a reptile meant danger. So to survive, they learned to be quiet when they heard that hissing reptilian sound. Or more accurately, uh, those that were quiet survived and passed that trait on to their descendants. Right. It wasn't long before they figured out that if they mimicked the hissing sound of the reptile, that their offspring instinctively would remain quiet. This is a trait that we carry to this day. Whenever we want a baby to be quiet, what sound do we make? Shh. The sound of a hissing reptile. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting and fun to speculate how the dinosaurs would have evolved given what they were 66 million years ago. Right. I remember <clears throat> when we first started spending time together, it was very early on, and I was starting to, to catch 
you know, the feels. And I <laughs> wanted to learn more about the things that you were interested in. And I remember you talking about Dragons of Eden. And I was like, well, that that straight up sounds interesting. And I knew I loved mm. Carl Sagan, right. but I hadn't read the book. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know. <laughs> so I went to Mr. Paperback and I found this book called Out of Eden. And I read it and I was like, hey, so I was reading um, this Out of Eden book. And you were like, oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's really interesting. And you were like, cool. And of course, you were not impressed by it at all because it's two different books. Uh And uh, the book that I read was about invasive species, uh, mostly the brown snake and how it's uh, still interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) Points for effort. But anyway, it is interesting and fun to speculate how the dinosaurs would have evolved given that they, where they were 66 million years ago and then add another 66 million years of natural selection and evolution. Sure. Um, would they have built cities? Um, <clears throat> I think that they would have slash have and that they're lizard people. Yeah. Now, those are those are uh, aliens from a, a different planet. You don't know. Of course, there's really no way to tell. But what we do know is that they did become extinct and mammals rose up to fill the void. On the other side of the spectrum, on the other end, if humans were to go completely extinct tomorrow, what species what species would rise up and fill that void? Oh, that's a very 12 monkeys question. Yes, live science has an extremely interesting article that speculates on the most likely possibilities, the uh, the contenders, the candidates for that. We've gotten to a point now where uh, technology and gene sequencing, as well as a pretty solid understanding of evolution, that as Martha Reiskind, a molecular ecologist at uh, North Carolina State University said, quote, we're pretty good at making short-term predictions. For example, we can predict that if humans were to suddenly go extinct tomorrow, climate change would continue to drive many species toward uh, drought resiliency in order to survive. Mm Cold specialized species will continue to struggle as well, meaning, sadly, polar bears and penguins are unlikely to thrive in uh, the millennia after humans are gone. There's a book called Afterman Zoology of the Future by Douglas Dixon. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it's on my list. Uh, he's a genealogist and a science writer. He said, quote, A big thing will be the concept of convergence. That's the evolutionary process when two completely unrelated organisms end up developing similar traits. And uh, these traits are beneficial and encourage survival in a particular environment or to fill an empty niche. He gives I, he gives fish as an example. The I shape was just going to say, I need an example. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, the shape of fish. There are lots of different types of fish, but they all have a similar shape. They're shaped that way stabilizing fins that are optimized for life in water. But then again, so are dolphins. And they've evolved in a very different way. They're warm-blooded and they're air-breathing mammals. Got it. So speculation is that perhaps similar species to us might rise up. They would probably need opposable thumbs in order to build cities like we have. The ability to modify our environment is uh, really what separates us from all the other animals. So we're looking at other primates, perhaps, like chimpanzees and bonobos. They're highly intelligent and have thumbs, so they they make tools. 
So it's possible we could be looking at a, you know, a real life Planet of the Apes type scenario. Yeah, but bonobos are always masturbating, so I think they'd get easily distracted. <laughs> well, I can't really say that humans don't do that. We just are good at hiding it. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. And I mean, come on, they've got opposable thumbs. So after we managed to outlast a highly intelligent uh, Neanderthal species 40,000 years ago, we became what we are today. So chimps or bonobos could mm -hmm. possibly rise up and fill. However, it's very likely that if there's a mass extinction event that wiped out humans, it would probably wipe out all the primates as well. So sure. even though they probably are most well equipped to fill our position, they would probably die with us. The next possibility is really intriguing. Birds, like chimps, they use tools. They, they Right now, they're tool users. Right. Certain types of birds have been observed taking pieces of burning twigs into the forest and starting fires to drive their prey out into the open so they can eat. It's incredible. <clears throat> if humans were to disappear tomorrow, it's possible that it would be the birds that rise up to fill the void, which is interesting because birds are the only surviving dinosaurs. It's really easy to see how birds would fill our roles as the smartest and handiest mm. of land animals. Think about that for a minute. So the dinosaurs are wiped out with the exception of uh, the uh, ancestors of birds. Mm -hmm. Little tree shrews rise up, become us. The surviving avian dinosaurs become birds. We destroy ourselves and then the birds take over. The dinosaurs win. <laughs> it's been shown in research that ravens and crows have intellects similar to chimpanzees. That's according to a research study that was published in 2020 in uh, the Journal of Science. According to Live Science again, birds have been observed using their feet and their beaks to fashion wire hooks as tools. Right, and I just watched a TikTok the other day about a woman who set up a um, a bird vending machine. Oh, so you can buy birds like at the airport? No, so basically it's like a bird feeder, but it's a dispensing bird feeder and the bird has to bring a piece of trash and put it into a hole and then a piece of bird food will come out. And the birds picked up on this right away. Wow. And so they're cleaning up the neighborhood <laughs> and also getting fed and it's pretty rad. Birds are so smart. One of the most intelligent birds that we're aware of, African gray parrots, they can learn nearly a hundred words they know what they mean they can also do simple math including the concept of zero again according to life science now we have both had african gray parrots mm -hmm. in our um existence and uh we, i think we both agree that yeah they're probably about as smart as uh well adolescent humans probably anyway and many adults they're also cleaner than than adolescent humans and many adults <laughs> Some species of birds have massive communal nesting sites that have been used for generations, essentially just building little towns and they die off and their kids inherit their nest and, and it just keeps going. Sure. Another highly intelligent as well as dexterous animal that is a candidate would be octopus. Oh, for sure. Jennifer Mather, who's a cephalopod intelligence researcher at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. By the way, what a cool title that is. She told Live Science, quote, intelligence is modifying your behavior as a result of influence from your environment. Huh. And octopus are extremely intelligent. They can tell the difference between a real or a virtual object. 
and they've been observed engineering their environment by removing unwanted algae from their dens or building shelters and barricades with shells. And that reminds me of that documentary we watched, My Teacher the Octopus. (laughs) Oh my God. If you've not seen it, watch it. It's so good slash awful. Just make sure you have lots of tissues. The tissues are for tears, by the way. Yes, yeah, right. right. Not what bonobos use them for. Anyway, um, the thing the octopus has going against it is that instead of iron-based blood cells like we have, which bind to oxygen very efficiently, octopuses, is it octopuses or octopi? I've heard it both ways. Have copper-based blood cells. So cool. So they do bind to oxygen, but not as efficiently. Mm. So the octopus's pie... must remain in in oxygen-saturated waters. According to Mather, once again, quote, they've taken an an inefficient metabolism about as far as they can go. So probably not an octopus. Mather does think uh, she has a pretty good idea of the front runner to take over the mantle from human beings. She thinks, most likely, social insects. Social insects, like ants and termites, will be the big winner. Well, termites makes a lot of sense because they're so resilient. Yes. Well, she actually says she uh, that insects, especially social ones like ants and termites, are tougher mm. than we are. Oh, for real. And she's probably right. Insects have proven to be incredibly adaptable to all, all kinds of environments. According to the Natural History Museum in London, mm. they've been around, insects have been around nearly 500 million years. And during those 500 million years, they've evolved in ways that fill just about every possible niche you can imagine. They fly, they burrow, they swim, they build elaborate cities in some cases. Right. Certainly the ants and the termites do. They organize their colonies in ways that resemble human civilization more than any other non-human species on the planet. According to research published in 2017 in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B, termites can communicate over long distances with their colonies using vibrations. Ants are known farmers bringing leaves and fungi back to their communities. So if insects survive climate change, it's pretty likely that the odds are in their favor to take over the world. That makes perfect sense. I think so, too. Of course, there's no way to really tell. We can't really predict how evolution will develop. When uh, when you're talking about timescales that are this great, we're pretty good at predicting short-term... Right, there's just too many variables, too. That's exactly right. Martha Ricekind, again, the North Carolina State University uh, professor, summed it up in uh, the li- that live science article by saying, quote, as you go further and further out, your precision is less clear. There are all these wonderful things that cause variation. Those factors include random mutations, mm-hmm. sudden extinction events, and population bottlenecks in which a species pulls itself back from the brink of extinction but loses much of its genetic diversity. And it's even more difficult to predict whether other species will develop human-level intelligence or the desire to build cities and civilizations. So the birds might, you know, might have all the intelligence and the inability and know that they have that as an option and go, ah, fuck it. (laughs) That seems fair. But is it even possible for a species to rise up again to the level that the human race has impacted the planet Earth. Again, from the Live Science article, Douglas Dixon, the author of Afterman, Zoology of the Future, he's less optimistic. He says, quote, 
I don't think nature will make that mistake twice. <laughs> well, information from that great life science article, Wikipedia, Dragons of Eden by Carl Sagan, and After Humans, a zoology of the future, of the future by Douglas Dixon. That was really interesting. I love to speculate on things like that. Not just what would dinosaurs be like if the asteroid or comet Mm -hmm. had not taken them out 66 million years ago. A lot can happen in 66 million years. Look look at the the difference between the tree shrew and us today. What would they be? But then to project it forward, Mm. who's going to fill the niche when we're gone? And then you've also got to consider the variables like the environment as we've left it and what that looks like and the things that could change based on that environment. So we have nuclear waste stores. We have, you know, things that could change the environment after we're gone. Right. Well, it says that after we're gone, you know, climate change will continue for another thousand years or so. So there you have it. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. In 1837, a man tried to kiss a woman without her consent. Well, she took exception to that and bit his nose off. The man then sued the woman for assault. The judge, however, ruled against him, saying that, quote, When a man kisses a woman against her will, she is fully entitled to bite his nose off if she so pleases. We're in the early production process of uh, our next podcast, uh, the shallow end, and that's the one that you're producing, and I'm co-hosting with Lindsay Schnebley, who is the voice of the curator, mm-hmm. and his wife Nan McNamara also is uh, heavily involved in it. And we were talking with them the other night, and we were telling them how amazing it is when we do a story. Sometimes, almost immediately, we'll get a message back from somebody who is directly involved in the yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Like the guy whose mother was the lady who escaped Ted Bundy. Well, the next day, somebody posted a message on one of the social media sites regarding the story that I did about the two young girls in South Dakota right. who were found in their car 43 years after they disappeared. Julie wrote, I live in this area and grew up knowing this case well. I went to church with Oscar and Adele Jackson. That's Pamela Jackson's parents, one of the girls who went missing. And they were the kindest people you ever met. Oh. I remember the day the news broke that they had finally found them. And no one really knew what to think, as so many people had assumed it had been foul play. I would too. A lot of us around here like to think that Oscar somehow helped solve the case from beyond. Mm. Like uh, he, he had passed five days before they found the uh, the car after 43 years. That's incredible. And then she corrected our my pronunciation on several local names. It wasn't Lichen, it's Licken. David Licken was the guy they suspected that had something to do with it, who was serving 250 years or something. And the creek is pronounced Bruley, so my apologies for that. Oh, there you go. Thank you very much. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
but what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know the last time Jethro and I were face-to-face, we went hunting for celebrity gravestones? Everyone acts surprised. This is the Box of Oddities. What you got in the hopper for me, youngster? Please cut that out. Nope. Do it. No! So, it's your turn. Ireland. We have wanted to visit for some time. I went years ago, but I was young and stupid, and so I don't remember much about it. You ate a a whole bag of uh, chocolate espresso beans Mm -hmm. and just uh, buzzed the whole time. So Yeah, it, it was a problem. Anyway, Ireland has an annual Lady of the Lake Festival. It's a summer event which takes place every July in Irvine's town. And the folklore has it that a legendary lady walked amongst the myth and islands, uh, bringing a sign of good times ahead. A watery tart? A watery tart, if Mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. Now, this 11-day festival sure does seem like a good time. The first Lady of the Lake Festival took place in 1978. It's featured a turkey walk and the World Championship Wolf Whistling Competition. My goodness. But in 2015... Visitors to the 37th annual Lady of the Lake Festival were exposed to a new event, a dung spitting competition. (coughs) You okay? I'm just practicing for the dung spitting (laughs) competition. What? It's the doing or the dunging of competition creator, organizer, and participant, Joe Marn. Joe's father organized the first Lady of the Lake Festival, and in an effort to draw in more tourism for the festival and the town, Joe, inspired by an emu dung spitting competition, (laughs) came up with the idea for a sheep dung spitting competition. Wow. According to a local paper, Joe is known for his quirky ideas during the annual Lady of the Lake Festival. Mm -hmm. Speaking to the Sunday World, Joe said, I had the idea after a couple of Smithwicks. (laughs) Which is a delightful ale, by the way. So is it like it sounds? People sign up to, to spit poo from their mouths? Well... The competition involves participants taking sheep dung into their mouths and attempting to spit it further than their opponents. That's exactly... Yes, it's exactly what you think it is. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow, wow. So is there like a trial round? Do you have to qualify? No, I think they just wanted to get as many people into the competition (laughs) as possible. I see. What do you win? Anything cool? Money. It better be a shitload of money. Shitload. (laughs) (laughs) A shit ton, if you will. So, this was inspired by another competition? Yeah, uh, I guess this is not terribly unique. 
In South Africa, there's a sport called kududung spitting, or bokdrol spog. It's a sport practiced by the Afrikaner community. Uh, interestingly, unlike many similar sports, the distance is measured from the marker to the place that the dung pellet comes to rest, rather than where it initially hit the ground. Okay, so, so just so we're all clear on the rules there. Yeah, various rules based on uh, the different poo-spitting circuits. Participants traditionally drop a poop pellet in a shot of alcohol, which I guess is some sort of an effort to uh, sterilize the poop. Uh Uh, However, some people do compete without the alcohol. According to one blogger with experience, they say even the most diehard of competitors is unwilling to use a fresh pellet. (laughs) Well, that's just wisdom. Right? Because that's gross. (laughs) Also keep in mind that the dung must be firm and not crumbly. Because if it's crumbly, you know, first of all, you're not going to get a lot of distance on it. And then also it's going to leave that aftertaste and the ridicule of your competitors. I I would think that all the competitors are probably subject to ridicule. No, no. Just the ones who get the crumbly poop. I see. Anyway, uh, kudu dung spitting is popular enough to have an annual world championship. The world record of the sport is a distance of 51 feet or 15.56 meters. It was set in 2006 by Sean Van Rensburg of Adu. Unclear uh, if they are an alcohol dipper or not. All right. So can you get a running start? Like, is there a line that uh, you can't cross? Maybe you back up a little bit and you can get some momentum going first because that would be my strategy. Oh, um, yeah. I think that that's allowed. Wow. But... I would be the best poop spitter. You think so? I think so, yeah. I do. I can throw a golf ball with my feet. I feel like that is completely unrelated. I don't understand how that's connected at all. What what just, just happened in your brain it's it's a demonstration of your that, athletic skill yes exactly uh-huh. and my ability to uh, achieve the seemingly impossible i think that your toxic trait is that you think that you would be good at this <laughs> anyway spitting things is a sport all over the place though there's cherry pit spitting and champagne cork spitting there are tobacco spit spitting competitions prune spitting olive pits also cricket spitting that's a sport where contestants place a dead cricket in their mouth and then spit that as far as they can are they extinguishing um crickets for the event or are they going around and finding them you know already dead unclear but i appreciate your asking the question it's important Cricket spitting was developed in 1996 by an entomologist in Indiana as a competition for their annual bug bowl event, which brings over 30,000 people per year to their campus for a series of insect-related events and competitions. (laughs) I guess my question is, like, how many insect-related events and competitions can you really come up with? But enough to draw in 30,000 people per year, I guess. That doesn't even make any sense. Anyway, back to Ireland. So the dung spitting competition was surprisingly popular. Remarkably, 40 to 50 competitors participated, including the festival queen, the Lady of the Lake herself, Emir Donnelly. 
Organizers, though, only had 30 pieces of sheep dung ready for the competition, thinking that that would be enough. Uh, but with so many entrants, they had to recycle 18 no. pieces that had already oh. been used. Oh, no. See, now, now that's gross. Right. Yes. Somebody already had that dung in their mouth. Ew. Like, where do you draw the line? If you drop it on the ground, is it still okay? Is <laughs> there a five-second rule? Long, as long as it's not crumbly. I, I think it's fine. That seems to be the rule. The uh, organizer of the event was very enthusiastic. Joe, we talked about him. Joe was very enthusiastic about this. Um, I would say a little too much, actually. Um, he allowed the sheep to um, deposit the dung directly onto his face. Um, <laughs> oh, no. For, <clears throat> yeah. 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 Wow, he should get extra points. But again, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he was using that dung because that's fresh and you can't really make that. Hmm. So I don't, I don't know exactly how that part of the event worked. Maybe it was just a like, hey, look at, look at me letting this sheep shit on my face i don't understand it i don't understand that part of it it's a whole different level of competition yeah um but when we went to animal kingdom the other day we actually saw one of the animals from africa which traditionally would have been the dung makers mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so that was really neat i was like oh yeah i'm gonna talk about your poop real soon um so that was that wow yeah wow wow that's dung spitting, a long and storied tradition. I got most of my information from The Independent, from Ripley's Believe It or Not, Huffington Post, and of course, Wikipedia. I am shocked that this sport hasn't gained more traction uh, internationally. Well, there's so many options for dung. I mean, sure. there's alligator dung, there's meerkat dung, there's other dogs they they need to really organize why is it alligator and meerkat were the two animals i thought of just then <laughs> because you're katrina walls all right anyway um i don't think i'll be partaking in this event or going to it ever an event that we would like you to go to would be perhaps one of our live shows oh that segue uh -huh, right? so good right we're gonna be uh out for three shows the end of march uh, Nashville, of course, Huntsville, Alabama, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Get all the details and your tickets, theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, a beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? 
Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friendly neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.